Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, letters from soldiers in World War I. What was it like on the front lines? What did our young soldiers learn about war and the prospect of their own deaths? With equal doses of wit and bravado, hear the stories of New Britain's Stanley Works employees serving in France, along with World War I-era music recorded from the original records from the collection of Henry Arneth in this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Andrea Kulak. I am museum educator at the New Britain Industrial Museum. To help keep the world safe for democracy, the United States entered World War I in April 1917. From the industrial heart of New Britain, Connecticut, more than 400 Stanley Works employees left home to serve. Stanley Works, founded in 1843, made cold rolled steel, hinges, and door hardware. These soldiers came from every department including purchasing, steel, tool making, and new machines. To keep their employees at home and at war connected, on November 1, 1917, the company began printing and distributing a newsletter titled The Stanley Workers. Those in the military were encouraged to write long, newsy letters to the company, and those at home were encouraged to write long, cheerful letters back. Many of the letters were then published in the newsletter to be read by all. What follows, in their own words, are complete texts and excerpts from 11 letters written by eight Stanley employees serving in the War to End All Wars. These letters and copies of the Stanley workers are now in the collection of the New Britain Industrial Museum, dedicated to exhibiting, preserving, and promoting the history of New Britain, Connecticut, the hardware city of the world. Please be aware that you will hear derogatory terminology common during World War I that is unacceptable today. Bosch, for example, is a derogatory term for German. You will also hear enthusiasm for war and the job they were sent to do. The letters are read by CCSU public history students Jacob Carey, Joe Guerrera, and Ryan Polino. The first set tell the experience of battle. The second set tell of camp life and thoughts of home. Our first letter was written by Lieutenant Rodman Chamberlain who, before entering, worked in the purchasing department. Chamberlain was with the 102nd Regiment, Company E, made up primarily of Connecticut soldiers. One of his responsibilities was to hand out pay. On February 11, 1918, he wrote, I surely have had an exciting full week. Getting away from our old camp was a job to tax the patience of any man. We finally got away all right, and lost only one man en route. I suppose he has hitched up with some one of the following outfits by now, but we haven't heard from him to that effect. We reached the end of our rail journey at three in the morning and marched about 12 kilometers to our building place. It was in a mine, 
and there are so many and such complex passages in it that I got lost several times. It is quite exciting here now. It is 3.15 p.m. and clear, and consequently there are quite a number of airplanes in the sky, which are causing a lot of shooting from anti-aircraft guns. The Bosch machines are quite far off, but we can see the shells burst, though we can't see the machines themselves. The day after we got here, there were a number of Bosch machines in the air, and it was exciting to watch them try and outdistance our guns. They did pretty well, but we heard later that one of them was brought down that morning. To go back, when we finally got to the mine on the morning we landed from the train, I was as tired as I could be. I had only two hours of sleep on the train, and the march had been about 12 kilometers long. Besides, I was carrying a 1,021 centime pieces in my haversack, which constituted the odd amount of the men's pay delivered to me just the day before, and it weighed a ton. By the way, after I toted the stuff way up here, I discovered the clerk had not brought the payroll, so that I couldn't pay the money out. Yesterday, I rode down on one of the company's bicycles and turned it over to be taken care of until we came back. We were at the mine only one night, but I had the best time. The French officer stationed there invited us all to dinner, splitting up our numbers among their three battalion messes. We had a wonderful dinner with excellent wine and enjoyed immensely talking with our French officers, who were splendid fellows. We were the first American offers they had met, and they were much interested in us. And of course, as all French officers and soldiers are, very glad to see us. I kept thinking of what one of them said. A young second lieutenant said to me, in English, but with a very queer accent, I like very much making the war. It's very nice. And really, he was not far from right. I have been as busy as the very devil and talking about it. But up here you see so much of real war that you are fascinated and are glad to be a part of it. Besides, the French are so pleased to have us here that it makes us glad to be here to help them. Well, we marched the next day from the mine to where we are now. We are in what is left of a little French village in back of the lines, about four kilometers from the front. There is war all around us. The village is nothing but a pile of rocks, the most desolate place imaginable. We live in dugouts underneath the debris and are very comfortable. There haven't been any rats in my dugout, but they are all around, picking at the rubbish and the rocks and the dirt. One ran across my foot in the first sergeant's dugout last night. We are in reserve for the companies in the front lines, and take our turn up there tomorrow, or in a few days. No definite orders yet. There has been no shelling right here, but there is up in the front, and it is great fun. I like it so far. I have been up partway, but haven't been in the front line yet. The country is terribly devastated. Nothing but shell holes and bare black trees. It looks something like the end of that pond between Pittsfield and Adams, where the water has receded, leaving the old tree stumps, except that it doesn't show the ever-present shell holes. We are the pick battalion of the regiment and are in the line first, which is a great honor. The colonel is wonderful and is very pleased with the way the men have done so far. I only hope, and I feel sure that my hope is well-founded, that Company E will show up as well, or better, when it has its chance. 
I'm keeping my diary up so I can tell you all about it when I get back. The day after we got here, I went up to a dugout over three kilometers from here, and the fool French guide took us in one place right across some open country, on a path winding in and out amongst the shell holes, and right in the side of the Bosch line. Of course, we were pretty far from the rifle and machine gun fire, but our going was liable to disclose positions. The Frenchmen have been in the war so long that they take all kinds of chances that seem to us as dangerous. The spirit of the men is wonderful, and they are in for anything, dangerous or not, but preferably dangerous. I have complete confidence in them. Three days later, on February 14th, Chamberlain wrote again, this time from the front line. My career as a soldier has actually begun. I'll jump ahead of my story and tell you that I'm on the front line now. And as I write, I hear the shells passing overhead and occasionally breaking near here. It is not half as bad as I thought it would be at that. I shan't be able to tell you everything on account of censorship, which, by the way, affects only me and not you. None of your letters are opened, and you can say whatever you like or no. I have never had busier, more active days in my life. Tuesday there were lots of airplanes out, as it happened to be a fine, clear day, and I saw quite a few engagements in the air. One in which the avions were fighting against each other with machine guns at a very high altitude, almost above us. The same day I saw a Bosch plane bring down a French observation balloon in flames quite near here. There's always more or less activity. On clear days, the avions are out, and on dull days like today, the artillery is active. All in all, it's good fun, and I like it. If you only knew how things really were, it would be so much better for you. Yesterday, the 4th platoon was out putting up barbed wire well back of the first line, when all of a sudden, they started to be shelled. Over a hundred shell bursts all around them, and there was not a single man injured in the whole crowd of over 40. It is necessary to get a very nearly direct hit, and one man is so small that he is pretty hard to find. Besides, we are in shelter most of the time. I said before that I am up to the first line. I came up last night with a few others, and all that I can say is that I am the only American officer here and that I live with a French lieutenant who speaks no English at all. I am forced to use my French, which is a mighty good thing for me. We live in a dugout, which is the cellar of a ruined house. We are in a town, or what's left of it, which was held by the Germans last fall, and contains lots of German souvenirs. I will try to get a hold of a Bosch helmet or something like that. I am separated from my company by quite a distance, but I expect to rejoin it in three days. Cannot write more now, as it is time to go out. We do our work at night and sleep during the day. A month later, on March 13th, Corporal Ed Heinz, serving with Company I of the 102nd Regiment, wrote to his friend Gus of his observations of the new battles in the sky. In this excerpt, Hyde references Charles Hamilton's historic 1910 flight in the British Wallachill Park. 
Hamilton, a New Britain native, was a pioneer aviator known for the Hamilton dive. I didn't mind staying in the first line. Of course it isn't all roses and cream, but just the way a fellow takes it and makes it. It was rather muddy, and a little artillery fire over your head and a couple of other things that weren't just like home. But it, in all, it isn't as bad as people picture the first line back home. Gus, you saw Hamilton fly, and people thought he was some daredevil. Well, he's just a piker alongside these fellows over here. Why, the first time I saw an air battle, my hair stood up straight. Tricks, why nothing to it? I saw one battle, and it was a good one. They were having a great time way up there, and I guess one fellow thought he was getting himself into hot soup, because all of a sudden, it seemed as if he lost control of his machine and he came falling down head over heels. But he didn't lose control. He put one over on the other fellow, because when he was below him, he started to fight anew. That's only one of their tricks. I can't explain them. You ought to see them. Those Bosch planes are pests at night, but the anti-aircraft guns are great stuff with the big flashlights to make them drag back where they belong. Gus, the manner in which Sis writes, I think she does a lot of unnecessary worrying. She is always afraid something will happen to me. This is the way I look at it. I've got a fighting chance, and that's all I want. Of course, when a shell goes off and gets you, why you don't get a fighting chance, but those are little difficulties, they say over here, you must overcome. All kidding aside, We'll all be back someday. We're in a rest camp now, but I expect no doubt to run into the line again, and the next time we do, I hope to get a Bosch helmet for your little son, for a little souvenir. I heard from Ed Stanton. He expects to be drafted. I wonder how you like the life. As I said before, it's the way a fellow makes it. All the boys are feeling fine, and I of course hope you and the rest of the folks are the same. Remember me to all the folks, read as often as you can. Peter Harkis Marwick was born in Scotland and went to Canada to enlist with the 54th Battalion Canadians, British Expeditionary Forces. Marwick's undated letter was published in the Stanley Workers on February 7, 1918. In this letter, he uses the word blighty which was a British term for a wound severe enough to send you home. His letter is particularly descriptive about the experience on the front line. I have been out here some months now and have been getting along okay. There has been quite a few occasions where I have been close to getting a blighty. You could take it from me, I've had a little excitement. What do you think a man does in battle? Swear or pray? I will tell you to the best of my ability as far as I know. There really is no language that can tell or any words that can describe what actually happens. You must feel it and believe me, you do feel it. You know what the papers say. Shells were screaming overhead and machine guns were going like mad. What a poor thing words really are compared to the real thing. I've had a dose of what has been described as the greatest gun duel on the Western Front. I am only sorry that my range of vision was limited to a small section. You will hardly believe it, but 
In the middle of all the shell and machine gun fire, men will swear and pray in almost the same breath. I don't know what the cause of it is, but I have had the experience and had to wonder at it myself. You can't stretch your mind far enough to bring the sensations that crown upon you in the midst of all the terrible noise. The shells scream like fiends all over and then go off with a bang that shakes the earth all around. The ground just trembles as if it were afraid. Then the machine guns. How shall I describe them? They are most terrible and deadly. Nothing human stands an earthly chance in one sweep from them. When everything is going on, the sound is unbelievable. It's beyond comparison with any thunderstorm you have ever heard. Well, I shall not worry you further with my battle story, as I see I can't tell it, though I can just recall every sensation that chased each other through me. I can't say it was just what fear is as we think it. It was something different, and you are, most of the time, just as calm as if you were miles away from it. Nothing seems to worry you at all. Now, in spite of all our minor troubles, we are a happy and cheerful lot of fellows, and not easily depressed by what we see of war. On September 7th, 1918, Marwick sent an update. Just a few lines to let you know that I'm still on the job here and getting along okay, considering I have been over the top twice in 26 days, besides holding the line in between. I had days very full of all kinds of excitement in two of the last drives the Canadians were in. Once I was crashed down in a shallow trench when a 4.1 landed on the paddock behind the trench and wounded one fellow and threw all kinds of dirt all over me. I was holding onto my rifle and had it within a foot of my face, so you can imagine my surprise when I looked at my rifle to find the foresight guard knocked off. I assure you I am truly thankful that piece of shrapnel did not hit me or I would not have been writing this. I could hand you a lot of stuff, but the trouble is, once you start, you don't know where to stop. I welcome the sight of your little paper. Every time I see that long envelope appear in the sergeant's hand when the mail comes around. Oui, oui, Marie. 
Lieutenant J.F. Connors served with the 165th Infantry. Riding from an unknown location on April 21, 1918, Lieutenant Connors shares his pride that the equipment they are using was made in New Britain from Stanley Steel. A while ago, I passed out a number of trench knives, a very good piece of work, and of course the workmanship interested me as they are made from our own steel with lanterns, Ferry and Clark stamped on it. Apparently every New Britain factory is a government workshop. I am still making excellent use of that dry foot. This is the third week of rain, and the mud is thicker than ever. Rats and mud demand incessant attention. Between the two, it's the easiest thing in the world to lose a boot, or a day's rations, or a day's sleep. The rest of the time we pay attention to the Bosch. To cope with the various phases of this life, one should be a rare bird. When a plane is close by, or the big ones have the range, I worry more about how small I can make myself than anything else. And when we have been close to, I want it just the other way. That tin hat seems the size of an umbrella when there is no immediate use for it, but as soon as the occasion arises, that thing feels more like a coat button. I am now taking a few days of rest, but that term is a whole lot deceiving. It usually signifies a cleaning up to get ready for the next one, and work as hard or harder than that in the trenches. The real redeeming feature is that bath and a change. I haven't heard from Rodman or any of the other men from the old regiment except for a letter from Ashley Griffin. They have been doing good work. I am mighty glad to hear of the good returns coming in from them. On April 28, 1918, Alexander Sinsky, serving with Company I, 102nd Regiment, American Expeditionary Forces, wrote about the Christmas gifts he received from home. Just a few lines to let you know that I am well and to thank you very much for the tobacco and cigarettes which you have been sending to me. I received a trench mirror and a Christmas package. I was glad to get the trench mirror, which is a very important thing to have in the trenches. I get the Stanley workers every week, and I hope you'll keep sending them to me, as I'm very much pleased with them. We were in the trenches in an American sector, and while we were there, there was a great battle going on, in which we lost quite a number of our boys. We were attacked by the Boche, and our artillery sent a big barrage, which was sweeping the Boche back as long as they came, so they had great losses, while we only had a few. I'm sorry that I cannot write more about the excitement we had, but on account of the strict censorship, it would not pass through. With my best regards to all. Private First Class Arl Haddleton from the Ordnance Department, 66th Artillery, shared his thoughts of home and his home in France in this letter written on August 22, 1918. I feel lost what to say, as I can only say certain things on this side of the pond. Looking over the Stanley Works paper, was interested to see that Department 41 had the bad luck to let Department 11 beat them in baseball. I can see where Department 11 had baseball luck. Give Department 41 another chance. The trip was a wonderful one, and had chance to see country that I will never again. I have been in three rest camps in England, and one in France. Seeing a good deal in both countries, and we are going hundreds of miles on land. My home is now a village, not far from the city of Limoges, and is a great place. I am sleeping on the top of a barn with 27 other fellows of our detachment. 
What I have seen of Europe? Give me the good old USA. They seem to be far behind us in every way. The fields here seem to be well in use. The women are just as hard workers as the men are and can be found in men's places in hundreds of cases. Carl L. Johnson, writing from the headquarters of the 3rd Battalion of the 102nd U.S. Infantry, revealed small comforts of furlough in this letter published in the Stanley Workers on August 8, 1918. The boys from the Stanley Works that are in my regiment are all well and doing fine. The war is still raging on, but thank the Lord the Huns are getting it right and left wherever they try to break through. It doesn't look much like peace this year, but we can all keep fooling around with Fritz until we are all ready to strike the fatal blow that will crush Germany and her murderous gang. I had a two-day furlough a week ago and went to a fair-sized city not far from the front. I had a wonderful time and slept on a real feather bed, which I have not done since I left the States, and that was quite a while ago. It made me think of home once more, but that is a place I don't expect to see until the war is over. We are not struck on war any more than people at home, but we know there is a great cause for which we are fighting. I am very glad that I can say I am in the Great War, for as many interesting things about it. I have had some very close calls with some of Fritch's big shells, but I have been lucky, and I hope my luck stays this way until the war is over. Of course, if it is my fate that I shall be killed at war, why I might, but I will trust the luck. I'm not afraid to die, but I want to live as long as possible and see this war to a finish. Unaware that the armistice was just two months away, in this letter published by the Stanley Works on September 19, 1918, Johnson wrote, I thank you very much for all you are doing for us boys over here, and the only way I can see to appreciate your kindness is by wiping a few more Germans off the face of the earth. I have a few already to my credit, and hope I can stay alive and be able to do my share in cleaning up the Huns, which we certainly can do. We have our hands full sometimes. I did not take off my shoes for 24 days, and the last time I had a bath was in the latter part of June. I had a good bath today, and all clean clothes, so I almost feel human again. After the armistice, not every soldier immediately went home. When this letter was written on November 30, 1918, George M. Hansen was on board the USS Fulton, and he hoped he wouldn't be forgotten by those at home. He refers to the devastating flu pandemic that caused 50 to 100 million deaths worldwide between January 1918 and December 1920. The few lines to let you know I'm still alive and have so far escaped the flu. I was very sorry to see in the weekly the death of Miss North and the two boys from the mill. I have known them ever since I came to work for the Stanley Works, which is about six years ago. Once more, I must thank you kind people for this wonderful little paper that you send me twice a month. If it were not for that good little paper, I would not know if Old New Britain was still on the map. Now that the world is at peace again, I suppose you will discontinue publishing the weekly. Then we boys that will have to finish our enlistments will never hear any news from the old factory. I, for one, will be very much disappointed. Now that the war is over, I have to put in for a discharge, which every man in the outfit had the privilege to do. But, being single, I suppose I will have to finish out my four years. I wish I could pack up my bag and hammock and hike or sail back to Old New Britain to Department 11 so as to be with old friends again. Without a doubt, Thanksgiving Day just passed, 
was the best one I have ever had. We had a dandy dinner and the fishing was the best I have had in some time. Best of all, mail came in from the States. The first we have had since we left. Everybody was very happy to hear from home and friends. That is, from those who haven't forgotten us. The weather is just like the good old summertime in the States here. And we go in swimming every day while you people in New Britain have to hustle to keep warm. Stanley Works published The Stanley Workers until the early 1940s when it was renamed Stanley World. During World War II, Stanley World continued to keep those at home connected to those overseas. We invite you to come by and see New Britain in World War I, a special exhibition on display through 2017 at the New Britain Industrial Museum, 185 Main Street in New Britain. For more information, please visit nbindustrial.org. This is our third episode marking the 100th anniversary of World War I. Listen to episode 24 for my dramatic reading of Cleveland Moffat's 1915 fictional cautionary tale, The German Invasion of Connecticut, and episode 25 for Dave Corrigan's story about the Connecticut National Guard Service on the Mexican border in 1916. Read stories about Connecticut in World War I in the spring 2017 issue of Connecticut Explored, available by subscription or single issue at CTX. Explored.org. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Karen Hudkins and Andrea Kulak from the New Britain Industrial Museum, Henry Arneth and CCSU students Jacob Carey, Joe Guerrera, and Ryan Paulino. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Norman and Patrick O'Sullivan. And thanks for becoming part of the Grading the Nutmeg family. Please write a review on iTunes and stay with us for more authentic and fascinating stories about Connecticut history. Thank you.